I'm Angela Kenneke. Welcome to Grieving Out Loud. For the next five weeks, I'll be bringing you conversations I had with speakers and authors at the Bereaved Parents USA conference in St. Louis in July. I recorded podcasts with women who've dealt with their own grief and have transformed it into helping others cope. Caleb was born first, and he was stillborn, but I didn't know what was going on. I remember them taking him and putting him at the end of the operating table, you know, and I wanted that skin-to-skin contact. And I I said, can I hold him? And, And everyone kind of looked at me a little horrified. We kick off this series on coping with grief with Diane Bergeron. One of her identical twins died shortly after birth. The loss changed the trajectory of her life, as well as that of her entire family. As a PhD researcher, she is now focusing on how organizations can support bereaved employees. Well, Diane, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I'd like to start off a little bit by having you tell your story of grief and of losing a child, because we talk a lot on this podcast about older children, adult children, We don't often address the subject of stillborn or a baby dying. And I just was hoping you would share a little bit about what happened in your family. I'm not really sure where to start. Um, I was unexpectedly pregnant with twins. They were identical twins. Not expecting. I, I didn't even, we weren't even trying to get pregnant. You know, it just kind of happened. And then early on, I just, I kept seeing twins all around and multiples of things. And I just, I remember saying to my husband, like, I just feel so much energy in my abdomen. It just, it just, it didn't make any sense. And then, so when we finally went for uh, an ultrasound, I was not surprised. You know, I, I even said to the technician, I said, you know, I think there might be two of them. And she kind of rolled her eyes, probably like she had heard that before. And then all of a sudden there was this intake of breath. And my husband said, what, what is it? You know, and it, was twins. Um, and everything went fine throughout the whole pregnancy. And even when I went into labor, so my our older son was born in 2006, and it was natural delivery, 26 hours of childbirth, you know, really difficult, painful, all that stuff, no drugs. And with this one, I had contractions. I had absolutely no pain and no sensation. I was literally sitting in the hospital bed with my legs crossed, chatting with the nurses, and they would call other nurses in to look at the monitor and look at me. And they were like, I have never... Well, and now in retrospect, with everything that happened, I feel like that was just kind of this gift of, you're going to suffer after this, but you're not going to suffer before. Um, So Caleb was born first. And he was stillborn, but I didn't know what was going on. I remember them taking him and putting him at the end of the operating table, you know, and I wanted that skin-to-skin contact. And I I said, can I hold him? And and everyone kind of looked at me a little horrified. But again, like, I just didn't know. I didn't understand what was happening. He just had this alabaster kind of glow to him. Um, And then they quickly said, you know, we have to get the other baby out and shoot everyone from the room, my husband, and we had two birth doulas, and then put the oxygen mask over me to put me out because I didn't, I wasn't anesthetized at all. And, uh, you know, I breathed in the glass and then felt like I was thrown back on a pillow. And then all of a sudden I felt my abdomen just being sliced open. So I was awake for the incision and then I lost consciousness. 
Yeah, so that, and you know, of course, that became a footnote to the story when your child dies. And so when I came to, they told me that, you know, both of the babies were in the, the NICU. They're fine. They're six and a half pounds, six and a quarter pounds. But there was something with Caleb's umbilical cord where the veins were exposed in one small part of it, which they never would have seen on any scan. And in literally the three seconds it took for him to go through the birth canal, the veins burst and he lost 20 or 30% of his blood. By the time they transfused him, it was 20 minutes later, you know, his APGAR scores were zero and one. And so we knew that he, you know, there was no normal brain activity. And so they, I think they had him on a ventilator and then we had to make the decision of keeping him on life support or not. And I just, you know, I was very clear in my mind that that was not going to be a life that I would have wished on anyone. Other people would make a different decision. But for me, it was very clear from the start, I'm not going to have him have to live that way. And so we made the decision to take him off life support. And he lived for about another day. And then, you know, they kind of woke me, you know, I had to have the C-section. So all that was very traumatic. And so I was in the hospital room sleeping and it was 10 o'clock at night and they came to get me and said, you know, he's failing. We're going to bring you up to the NICU. And so they wheeled me up and they called my husband and he came and, you know, I said, I want to hold him. And so they disconnected him from all the, the tubes and the wires and we just held him for hours, you know, as he was dying. Um, you know, the, I, I don't know if you've ever experienced someone dying, but at least with an infant, there's something called agonal breathing. And it literally sounds, it's this heavy, raspy breathing, and it sounds like they're in agony. Um, even though the pediatrician said that, you know, he wasn't in any pain and he was giving him morphine to kind of dull that. But it was, um, you know, it was just, it was incredible. It was traumatic. I'm thinking about this, and I'm so sorry, and it's just difficult to even hear. But at the same time, you're having this traumatic tragedy happen. You have a new baby, which is supposed to be a joyous time. So you have both things going on at once. Like, how did you reconcile that? Or did you reconcile it? Well, and not only that, we also had an older child who was not yet two, right? So a toddler and a new infant in this. And, you know, that was, I think, one of the things that was so difficult is they were identical twins. And so for the first three months of Joshua's life, our, you know, the surviving twin, when he would be sleeping in my arms, he would have his head tilted back and his mouth open a little bit, and he looked just like Caleb did when he was dying. And so, you know, finally at about three months, he started to look different, right, grow into himself. But that um, that was really hard to tease apart. And so it was, it was, you know, it was kind of grieving while also being relieved and happy to have, you know, Joshua there. What does Joshua know about his brother? How old is Joshua today? No, he's 14. 14, yeah, yeah. I mean, this was never anything that we kind of kept secret, and we would go down to the cemetery, and, you know, I thought it was important to kind of tell him the birth story, and yet at the same time, I didn't want him displaced by someone that was no longer here, and that I think was a huge realization for me. And I remember that we had um, we had joined this m annual memorial walk to remember that was happening in Cleveland. And so every year on this certain date, all these families that had lost infants or young children would do this walk. And 
one of the things we offered to do was help people plant trees to honor their child. And we went to this one family's house. And my husband was outside helping plant the tree, and I was talking to the mother, and she took me into her family room and showed me above her fireplace mantle. She had done um, almost like a rubbing of the tombstone that had her child's name on it, right? Because her child had died, and so this was kind of a memorial thing. And she said to me, we went to the cemetery on Christmas Eve and made that. And she had two other children, and I just remember thinking, she's pushed her living children aside to make room for the one that died. And I just being, I remember being very conscious of, I'm not going to do that, right? And needing to prioritize, you know, the children that were still with me while also maintaining a relationship with the one that died. Right, which is a hard balance to do, and I think a lot about that. I think a lot about that with my own surviving children, so I have three other children that need my time, attention, and love. And I do have Emily's artwork like up all over my house. I have some pictures of them, and her picture, I have some pictures of them. But I do worry in the charity and everything I'm doing in her name, I don't ever want them to feel overshadowed by her. And I think also my other children give me purpose to go on. I had a friend, and I felt so bad. She already had some mental health issues, some addiction issues. But after her son died of um, fentanyl poisoning, she completed suicide. And she had another son and a granddaughter and a husband. And I just, I wrote this blog. It's called Collateral Damage on our website. And I I just think like about like those poor other people, you know, who have been affected by this. And I understand that she had problems she could not overcome. But at the same time, That is one of the things that keeps me going is the other people. I think that's true. And the other thing is um, there's research that shows that not that suicide is contagious, but if you are close to someone that has completed suicide or attempted suicide, you're, you know, like it, it almost shows that this is a viable option. Right. And so I think one of the things I was cognizant of is also how we often go through difficult things in a way is role modeling for other people. Right. And it's not something that you're cognizant of when you're going through it. But I think I would look around at other people and think, well, how are they doing this? How are they managing their grief? What are they doing? How are they getting through it? Right. Because there's no roadmap for this. I think I was looking for easy answers. So I would read all these books and I would say, what, what's the secret here? I'm a researcher. I can figure out the answers. There are people that definitely were role models for me in grief. But yet at the same time, your journey is your own. And I think, you know, that um, this quotation that I love, that's just traveler, there is no path. We make the path by walking. I think that is so true in terms of grief, because there's no one that can map it out for you. And it's just this process of feeling your way through it and hopefully having other people come in and out of your life to, to help you guide it. But yeah, there's no easy answer. And I think especially, you know, research shows that the kinship relationship and you know, what that loss is, right? Like losing a child is one of the most traumatic kinds of loss. And then manner of death is another big predictor of bereavement is, you know, how did it happen and just how traumatic that experience was. I think sudden death, and in the case yours was sudden death too. I mean, I think when you're not expecting it, you can't mentally prepare. Not that you can ever really truly mentally prepare for loss, but you're definitely the sudden death is the most traumatic. So you have your own grief, you have your own loss, 
your own grief experience, and now you're studying grief and bereavement. Tell me about that. The history is that I was a research professor at a university, and I was going up for promotion. And in a research university, it's an up or out system. So if you don't get promoted or if you don't get tenure, you have to leave. And so, you know, even though I feel like I had pretty good metrics, I was getting all wigged out and anxious. And I would kind of talk to my husband about it. And one day, I think he was tired of me stressing out about it. And he said, look, he said, if you don't get promoted, we will sell the house, buy a sailboat, take a year off and sail around while we figure out what's next for us. And so jokingly, I started calling it the lose cruise, right? Because that's a pretty nice alternative to not getting promoted. So then in the in the spring, uh, my department sent me for some kind of leadership training. And it was really about rethinking your values and what's important to you. And that just broke things open for me. And I'm sure some of that was you know, a result of the losing Caleb five years before, it just had that effect. And so I just decided, you know what, I'm done. I need out. I want to hit the pause button on my life. I want more time with my children that are still here. And it was a spur of the moment decision. We made the decision sometime in March. I think by the end of April, our house was on the market. In June, we bought the sailboat. And July, we were on the sailboat. Okay, I have lots of questions. Um, Did you know how to sail? And were you afraid? I had I had been on a sailboat, I think, once in my life, and I think I got hit in the head by the boom. Um, I'm not a natural sailor. I'm still not. Like the fact that, I know, I know. It was awesome. Does your husband sail? Yes. So my husband actually had his captain's license. And I did take a sailing course after we bought the sailboat and after we were already in Annapolis, Maryland. But I don't think I ever really got good at it. And in fact, one time I heard my husband talking to the previous owner of the boat and I heard him and I was below decks. He was on top of the deck and I heard him say, yeah, you know, I think I'd give her like a D minus. And all of a sudden I was like, wait a minute, is that me? Like, is he talking about my sailing ability? And of course he was. So I think I eventually got up to maybe a B plus, but not a natural And you're on a sailboat with little kids. Yes. So our children were five and seven when we started the trip. And then when we got back, they were seven and a half and nine and a half. Did your family get closer because of it? How did you grow or change because you sort of took this leap into the ocean? (laughs) Well, one of the reasons that I think we did it is because the idea came up. And my husband started talking about it with neighbors and friends. And I kind of tried to silence him because I didn't want people to put that pressure on us. And we were at a party and another couple said, oh, we had the opportunity to, you know, sell everything and go live in Chile or something like that. And we decided not to do it. And I found that couple to be incredibly depressing and down. And I remember thinking to myself, like, oh, my gosh, if we don't do this, we're going to be like these empty shell people and walk the earth that way. And so to me, it was this is a trip about kind of coming back to life. And so it, you know, it just became non-negotiable that we had to do it. In terms of how it brought us together, I, I think the, the metaphor of the image is, you know, when you see something woven and you look at the knots on the back, I feel like this trip brought all of us just so much more tightly connected. I love that you had the courage to do it, or maybe the craziness to do it. I don't know what it is, but good for you guys. I mean, you you wrote a you wrote a blog about it, so people can find that yeah. online. We'll put a link. Sailing uncharted waters. We'll we'll put a link to that um, on this podcast. And then when you came back, you you got into leadership, corporate leadership, and then 
grief or or just tell me the order of what happened so when i got back um I, the, the university I was part of has a weird tenure system where you get, usually at most research universities, you get promoted and tenured at the same time at year six. And so my promotion to associate professor was actually unanimous at every level. When I came back from the trip, it was like, you know, two years later, I had to go for tenure. And even though, you know, my research publications, my awards were better than other people in my department that got tenured, I feel like there was a feeling of, oh, no, you don't get to do this. Like, you don't get to take two years off and then come back and get tenure. And so I didn't get tenure. And, you know, everyone told me that I had a lawsuit. And I just, I decided, you know what? I don't want to live in the negative space of a lawsuit for however many years that takes to unfold. And so I just said, okay, I guess this is done. Um, And so then it was, you know, a, a little bit of time trying to figure out, well, what's next? And then this position opened up at Center for Creative Leadership, and not getting tenure turned to be the best thing that ever happened to me. I think that's often true. Something that we think is horrible turns out to be a positive in the end when we look back at it retrospectively. So leadership, leadership in business, leadership, what are you studying? Well, so with regard to, I mean, so my research areas, one is you know, women and career advancement organizations. That's one. Another one is how leaders listen to employees and how it gets employees to speak up. But then the third area is bereavement. And I feel like, you know, there's no one working in this space of what is it like to go back to work as a bereaved employee. And I feel like the bereavement leave, you know, three to five days is ridiculous. It's not even government mandated, right? So it depends on your organization. And that's not even enough time to plan a funeral, much less grieve. Let's talk about that for a moment. Why do you think it is that corporate America, most businesses, want you to get right back to work? Now, I'll just share a little personal story. In my case, I took um, short-term disability. I took three months off. There was no way I could have gone on television or really done anything in, in terms of the stress of my job effectively or well if I would have gone back to work within days or even a couple of weeks. And so I I was lucky that I was able to do that. I had those benefits. I was able, it still wasn't necessarily easy to do. But why is it you think that our, our corporations, our businesses just believe within three to five days, if you lose a child or a spouse or your mother, that you're able to just jump right back into work? And are you able to do that? No, I think it's I think it's absolutely insane. And I think I was in the same position. I had the luxury of having an entire semester off and then the following summer before I had to show up to work. So I would have been non-functional if I had to go back after three to five days. I don't know why that is the expectation. I think that as a society, the U.S. is horrible at dealing with grief. I think that's part of it. I think another part of it is that not enough people have had the experience of that kind of loss to understand the repercussions and all the ripple effects. And I think it's noteworthy that it wasn't until Sheryl Sandberg suffered the loss of her husband, right, that Facebook, now Meta, changed its policy to 20 days of bereavement leave. And I think it was through Sandberg's conversations with someone at MasterCard that MasterCard followed suit. Right. So often it's someone at a high level has that personal experience and then things change. I have a couple of friends who are moms who both lost their children to suicide. And they both went back to work 
almost immediately, well, within you know a week or so at least, and both lost their jobs. One mother had trouble getting into work on time. She had trouble functioning at work. Another mother told me that her colleagues could not handle her grief and sadness. And I, they, they felt like there was nothing they could do. Like they just, they had to find another job or move on or do something else with their life. But it's so sad to me that employers, this other woman I know, she's very talented at what she did. She'd worked there for years, but the employer didn't value her enough to keep her on because she was grieving? Do they think she was going to be still acting like this five years from now? Do you know what I'm saying? Organizations are short-sighted because I have heard so many people and even one bereavement organization told me, I think it was people that feel like they were treated poorly while they were bereaved. Within two years, I think it's something like 80% of them have left their organization, right? And that's just a testament that People who are bereaved are so sensitized to everything that if you treat them well, you are probably going to double and triple their loyalty to you, right? But unfortunately, most organizations don't treat their employees well. But I think it's really just because they don't understand what bereaved employees are going through. You know, they think it's sadness and that, you know, you can kind of get back to work. And this is where even with the pandemic, with all of this focus on flexible hours, I really hope that will shift to giving bereaved employees more flexibility. Because I think often going back to work can be a respite from grief, right? Like that can be a place to do that. But organizations need to understand that employees need the flexibility to work when they feel they can, right? And to be able to kind of come in and out of that grief space and then go back into the workspace. How do you think we make these major changes in our culture, in our corporations? Got some easy answers for me there, Diane. Um, how do we, I mean, do you think, like Facebook made some changes, right? You said MasterCard made some changes. But we need more of this on a larger scale, especially for workers who are making, you know, who are in hourly jobs and minimum wage jobs. And they probably have the least flexibility of anybody out there. Bereavement and loss for people that have less privilege and are in different social class, you know, hourly workers is so much more intense and difficult because they don't have the support systems that someone, you know, with more privilege has. In terms of, you know, how to get organizations to change, part of what comes to mind is Fortune's best places to work list. You know, why, you know, they, because even the working mothers list is they look at certain factors in an organization. Why not add bereavement to that? I think one of the first things I would like to do is just understand the experience of employees returning to work. You know, what is that like? Interviewing those employees, understanding, you know, what was helpful to them, what was hurtful to them, and then also the experience of managers. You know, and this is where I do have some empathy and compassion for managers because I feel like I think they want to help. But so many people in our society are uncomfortable with grief. They really have no idea what to say. They have no idea how to support a bereaved employee. We've had a couple of people come back to our place where I work, and I'm always trying to check in with that person every day and just give them a chance to talk. I mean, I've been, they know I've been there. They know. Um, I don't think anyone else is doing that. I think people are just like, get back to work, like get back to work. And it's not because they're mean. It's because they don't know what to say. Or I just walk up and I say, how are you doing? How are things? You know, is everything okay? You know, anything I can help with? Or I'll bring them a book or I'll try to bring them something, like a little gift, just to let them know that I understand what they're going through. But I think most people probably don't get that unless there is someone else in the workplace who's bereaved, you know? 
I think it's the people that have suffered a significant loss that reach out to someone else that is newly bereaved, whether or not they know that person, because they know that they're probably not getting the support and they have some understanding of what they've gone through. Um, The other thing I think is a lot of people don't say anything because they feel like, oh, I don't want to upset the person. Right. But, but that's really about that person not being able to handle the emotions. And I think what's so important is it, when someone is bereaved is they need to be seen in their grief. And I think it's so hard to just witness that grief, right? Without needing to fix it or stop it, to just sit with that person for a while, let them be there, let them get it out. And then, you know, they can kind of pick themselves up and move on. There's a lot of rules, you know, in most workplaces that um, it's, it's hard to know for some people know what to do. So where do you think we need to go from here? What would you, an ideal world, if you, because I, I, you talked about flexibility. Is there a certain amount of time off or a certain, or something you'd like to see corporations do? Yeah, you know, I feel like at a minimum, I would love to see organizations off their, offer their employees at least kind of 20 days off to be taken flexibly. Right. Because what they don't realize is, oh, that person's, you know, the the birthday of the person that died or the death day of the person that died. Those are huge emotional roller coaster days. And I think it would be so much easier if people knew, okay, I have this space to do that. I've heard of a few organizations where they actually have a donated leave bank. Right. So that other employees can donate some of their sick leave or vacation days to the bereaved employees. And to me. That's something beautiful because it's a way for coworkers to feel like they're supporting the person. I wanted to end this podcast on that I heard you talk about was doing something symbolic to end your grieving, which, you know, obviously your grieving is not really going to just abruptly end, but creating some sort of ceremony or something symbolic to show that you're going to move forward even though you still carry that grief. Can you talk a little bit about what you did and why that was important and what advice you would have for other people? So I think it was my husband and I were coming up on the first anniversary of our son's death, and my husband came to me and he said, you know, I feel like we're in danger of this becoming our story, right? That we are never going to recover from this and we're never going to move on. And he said, I think we need to find a way to hold on to the love and let go of the grief. And for me, that felt really scary because the love and the grief were so entwined that it felt like letting go of the grief would mean letting go of the love. And so we decided that on the one-year anniversary, we were going to have this ceremony of kind of this symbolic letting go of the grief ceremony. And so we went to the cemetery, and my husband had been wearing this black T-shirt for the prior month. And he ripped up his t-shirt and we had both written letters to our son that we read out loud, you know, of course, falling apart as we read them and we were going to tie them to these helium balloons and, you know, let them fly free in the sky, which I wouldn't do today because when we're on a sailing trip, we would see all these helium balloons in the ocean. So that's not a good idea. I think I got dinged for releasing helium balloons, you know, got dinged on social media once that I did on a death anniversary. I mean, it's, it's a nice, it's a nice gesture. It's beautiful, but yeah, I've heard about the danger to animals and the environment. So, so it actually kind of worked out well because what I didn't realize is that, you know, it was 
late October in Cleveland and it's cold out and I didn't know that helium shrinks. And so these helium balloons we brought to the cemetery were just kind of bouncing around sadly on the ground. There was no uplift anyway. So we ended up burning the letters. Um, and it just, and it was interesting because on the way to the cemetery, as we were driving down the road, there was a library that had this, you know, like a, a connection over a road so that you could cross from one side of the library over to the other. And there was a bench in the middle of this walkway that I could see above, and there was a woman sitting there. And I just remember thinking, that's what grief is like. Like if you don't pick one side or the other, you're kind of stuck in the middle. And so I feel like that ritual for us, even though it didn't change anything, right? Like we didn't wake up the next day and everything was fine. It was as bad as it had been the day before, but it felt like at least we had put you know, kind of a stake in the land of the living and said, you know, at some point we are going to reclaim our life. Like we are not going to let this destroy us. And so I think psychologically it was a turning point for us. How do you honor your son today? I think in some ways by the work that I'm doing. You know, I feel like I would not be where I am now if all of that had not happened. And so to me, feeling like if I can make any impact on other people that are grieving and make that less of a burden for them, you know, then that's a way that I honor him. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to meet you and to talk to you. I'll bring you another interview from the Bereaved Parents Conference next week. Until then, check out other episodes of the podcast and read my blog on our website, emilyshope.foundation. If you like what you're hearing, please consider giving us a positive review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Until next time, wishing you faith, hope, and courage.